Occupy Wall Street was 10 years ago, and what have we learned? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, it's been a wild 10 years, but it has been that long since the historic Occupy Wall Street actions kicked off. The now nearly universally understood phrase, we are the 99%, was born in that action. The movement spread to other cities around America and got great media coverage. Then it seemed to sort of disappear, never heard from again. Not that that it meant that it had no lasting impact. Clearly, it changed our political language. Now everyone knows what the 1% is. A small group of very wealthy Americans, mostly white men, who have maintained disproportionate political power for decades. The concept has taken hold because it's true. And Americans do care about fairness and economic justice. And the fact is the power of the 1% is pretty much unaltered, if not worse. They are still there. The real hyper-wealth of the one-tenth of one percent has accelerated in the decades since Occupy. As with virtually all genuine political and social change, it doesn't come overnight. Civil rights, ending the Vietnam War, the safe energy movement, climate change, equal gender rights, they all take persistence and patience, which in our 21st century world of instant gratification is often challenging to maintain. So what can be learned about the 99% Occupy movement? What worked? What didn't? And more specifically, what internal mechanics contributed to its demise? With us today to discuss her new book, Are We the 99%, is author Heather McKee Hurwitz. The subtitle is The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. Heather McKee Hurwitz, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. I'm so glad to be here. Heather McKee Hurwitz is a lecturer of sociology and feminist scholar at Case Western Reserve University for nearly 20 years. She's been participating in and studying a variety of social movements in the U.S. and Global South, including the feminist, anti-war, student, environmental, and Occupy movements. She analyzes contemporary urban protests and social protests using a feminist and intersectional lens. And we'll find out what that lens is all about. Hurwitz used a grant to develop a digital Occupy archive of the data that informed the book. The flyers, the posters, newspapers, postcards, and other movement ephemera are now freely available to the public online. Well, again, thanks for being with us. What prompted you to write this book? I was so excited when I saw the Occupy movement come into being. Uh, You know, nearly 10 years ago now, I'd been following the Arab Spring that preceded it and the people who camped out in the Wisconsin capital. Um, We were seeing some incredible social movement activity starting. And I initially came to it because I wanted economic justice. And it was an incredible moment when people in more than a thousand town squares around 
the U.S. and even globally were trying to make that happen. And it was this incredible movement. And I also wore two other hats, though. I came to the movement as a researcher. So I wanted to have that critical distance to interview people, to kind of take that step back and see what we could learn from the movement. I'd been an activist, as you mentioned, for many years before, and I was ready to learn how could a movement be inclusive? How could a movement, you know, include that 99% of people in it? And also the third hat that I wore was as a feminist. So I had kind of my feminist radar up where we know in the foundation of feminist thought is racism, Mm -hmm. sexism, harassment based on sexuality is such a part of our world. Um, I came to the movement also critically uh, with that feminist lens. To, to really hear from women and queer people and femmes and the LGBTQ movement, you know, how were these people being included or perhaps how are they being marginalized in the movement? Yeah, it is, it is difficult. There's a lot of uh, history of, of left movement and uh, shall we say politically incorrect that's gone on. I was really taken aback to learn from you of something about Occupy Wall Street called Hot Chicks of Occupy Wall Street. What? (laughs) Tell us about that and its effects. So this movement um, was the first, really, in the U.S. to use social media, Twitter, Facebook, and all different kinds of citizen journalism to the extent that we might be used to it now, seeing a lot of videos and coming out from a lot of different, even individuals, this was the first movement where that was really possible. And there was a lot of, let's say, debate, uh, noise, tension, people doing a range of different kinds of media. And the Occupy movement was so much based on voluntary participation without really a centralized group, um, you know, reading it, thinking about the messaging. Um, We had things like the Hot Chicks of Occupy Wall Street, a website where people could see some of the beautiful women activists, according to the filmmakers, um, and even vote on the ones that people thought were the, you know, the the hottest. and it generated a, a lot of debate within the movement. Um, some feminists saying, you know, take this down. This is not right. This is, you know, this might be helping to recruit heterosexual men, but it's turning off a whole lot of other people. And that tension was really a big part of the movement, even from the beginning. These tensions oh. about about sexism and women and race and um yeah. Well, it is interesting. I, I suppose I have some similar background in being a, uh, a, a protester myself going back to the uh, late 60s uh, and just observing. It's, it's important to observe and take notes for sure. And we did it without social media back then. That's a powerful tool, and it cuts many, many different ways for sure. So what were what some of the differences of perspective 
and perhaps submerged biases within the movement that led to conflicts and tensions almost immediately. One thing that became incredibly um, obvious to me, and in a way I didn't quite expect, I didn't expect to find as much sexism and racism even within this progressive space. And I think we're used to hearing about, um, you know, racism within the halls of a corporation or um, sexism in we have so few women who are representing us in government. But our culture in which this movement is embedded, we have these default ideas about who are legitimate. Um, who we're willing to listen to or follow or um, who should be the spokespersons of a movement. And I think given the Occupy movement was so much about individuals participating and sort of getting involved, this openness, but not really a lot of central direction to that, we saw that those tensions about race and gender and even class, uh, marginalizing uh, homeless persons who were part of the movement, who were 24-7 occupiers who were really important to it. But um, those structures of inequality, um, our default views about who is more privileged Mm. and who is less privileged, even come out in a social movement. And even in progressive spaces. And it's a reminder about how much more work we yes. really need to do to come together. Yeah, it really is. That's just right up there in the face. And that must have been surprising for sure. And I can tell you from my own experiences and, and reading from history and about protest and left movements over the last more than 50 years, I saw a couple of examples which... I would have hoped the left learn from and not do again. For example, in the early days of the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, the role of women, as you may guess, was held to typing and making coffee for the male leaders, nearly all of whom were white. That was a long time ago. And, of of course, that led fairly quickly to a radical, angry burst of feminism. That was the real first explosion that I'd seen of feminism I mean, they must have been shocked. And it's to see something like that from the early 60s in 2011, um, how, how quickly were such practices challenged? And I hope they weren't that blatant, but I, I guess even more subtle is perhaps more uh, difficult to address and change. How, diffi- how, how quickly were such practices challenged? Nearly from the beginning. Um, I mean, feminists were involved in planning the movement, And as some of these practices emerged where you had some really loud white guys who were, were, you know, taking charge of things or women saying, you know, I'm not really feeling that safe sleeping overnight in the middle of my city. We need to do something different about this. Um, Women organized caucuses. Uh, They started talking online, which was a major difference from... Um, activists of the 60s, um, and Facebook allowed feminists, especially and LGBTQ communities, to come together really quickly and say, 
we're going to make a safe space for this. Mm-hmm. We're going to make uh, kind of <laughs> think about this within the movement. We can't, we can't have a movement where, um, you know, women are waking up sleeping next to strange guys mm. and where they feel they, that they're, they're, you know, kind of marginal to this movement. The per- reporters aren't seeking them out. We're not getting their views on press releases. Um, we need, we need to change this. So it, it was, a, I think, more quickly than activists of uh, the 60s, but it was still there. Well, that's good to hear. It was addressed more quickly. And, and paint a picture, if you would, because it was 10 years ago. Occupy Wall Street. It was at Wall Street, and there were large crowds there who were there, I guess, a lot of them 24-7. About how many people were there? and what, what did it look like? People sleeping outside for days on end? Tell us about that. The main encampment in New York started in September of 2011, September 17th, and it lasted through the beginning of November. And during that time, um, there were many nights when people were shoulder to shoulder in a, a park that was about one square block in New York, but kind of a big park. Um, so hundreds of people. And then during the day, there would be, I mean, thousands of people that came to visit the encampment, marches nearly every day to Wall Street. The New York Stock Exchange was about three blocks away. And people coming to do art and um, drumming and spoken word and uh, usually in the evenings, um, large town hall gatherings. And again, those were attended by hundreds of people, sometimes probably a, a thousand people um, who wanted to be a part of this moment. Um, my study also examines the, uh, the Occupy Oakland encampment and the Occupy National Gathering which was a conference in the summer of 2012 with people from Occupy movements around the country coming together to try to solidify the movement and go forward. That was a, I think it was a five-day encampment with about five workshops ongoing from about 10 a.m. until 10 at night. Incredible, incredible movement activity. We're talking thousands of people involved in this movement for months and and even longer than that. They were really involved even through 2012 once the encampments had been destroyed. Very nice. I can I can just picture the uh, the the feeling of enthusiasm and uh, you know the movement is not gone. I, I, I'm a little surprised that I mean. The Democratic Party, okay, let's face it, they're not real left particularly. They depend on Wall Street money. They do. I mean, not Bernie Sanders, but most of the Democratic Party. And I'm a little bit surprised that it hasn't been picked up more because there's a lot of pe- and people, you know, we, we Democrats missed a lot of the country who felt like the government is working for uh, the owners of it, you know, the people on Wall Street, the very, very wealthy interests. And I would think that that could potentially appeal to a lot of the people who who didn't vote for uh, for Hillary Clinton and didn't vote for uh, 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 
um, President-elect Biden. Uh, that, but we haven't we haven't picked up on that. And I don't know. I just find that interesting and a little more than a little bit disappointing that there's all that energy there. That you know, politics to make change, you got to have a lot of energy there. And for those who just Tuned in, perhaps. Uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Heather McKee Hurwitz about her new book, Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality. And another learning opportunity, I'm going through some of my own personal history here, I suppose, was in my days with the Clamshell Alliance, which was about opposing nuclear power. The goal was safe decentralized sources of energy instead of capital-intensive and terribly dangerous nuclear power. And in clamshell, decision-making was by consensus. That well-meaning process turned out to be a disaster. Anyone, anyone could block consensus, and they did. And there were large crowds, and if anybody wanted to block consensus, it really messed things up. Were these in any way similar to problems you saw in the Occupy movement? And is that what you mean by the tyranny of structurelessness? Uh, I'm flashing back to some of the people who I met in the Occupy movement who had been a part of the anti-nuclear organizing. Uh And they brought their experiences to the Occupy movement this was one of the incredible things about the Occupy movement um, what, and really activism today, uh, contemporary activism, is uh, we have activists who were involved in the 50s, 60s, 70s who are participating in the movement alongside millennial activists you know, who are just coming into politics because of Bernie Sanders or huh? because of the George Floyd um, protests this past summer. Um, and so that's, that's the one side of it. The, the movement had that opportunity, and in, in many ways they celebrated that in wanting to be the first participatory democracy movement this country has seen in decades and kind of build on that history. On the other side of it... Mm-hmm the tensions that you mention about how difficult it is to come to consensus among hundreds of people. Um, When you have a structure uh, and, you know, there were a lot of, there was variation around the country, but in some encampments it was 100% consensus needed. Mm. And if anyone blocked it or, you know, couldn't live with what decisions were being made, um, the meetings extended incredibly long and there was a lot of debate and a lot of frustration of people, you know, not, not willing to kind of stick around for that. Um, Some people digging in and, and really getting into that consensus process. But this was experiment in other words for it are like horizontalism Uh or, this movement, um, you know, eschewing leaders and wanting everyone to participate. And in some ways, it was an incredible experiment. And in some ways, there was a lot of tension within the movement because of that. So you use the phrase, the tyranny of structurelessness. Hmm. 
What does that mean? Right. This is a phrase uh, Joe Freeman um, coined in, I believe, in the 70s. She had been participating in leaderless um, women's uh, feminist circles. And uh, again, these groups were issuing leadership and Mm -hmm. saying, we don't want a group like this. But what she found was no matter without designating formal leaders, informal leaders emerged. Mm-hmm. And cliques, um, people who drew on sources of power they brought from outside the movement, maybe they were more educated, more wealthy, uh, white, were taking on greater leadership um, and decision-making power. And that's where the tyranny idea comes in. Even without a structure, without a structure, there will still be people who take more power than others. And I observe this in its you know, contemporary form in the Occupy movement, where you know, when anyone could volunteer and anyone could speak, People drew on those long-standing reserves of power, like being white, to speak more than people of color, or those who were housed, speaking more and having more authority over the direction of the movement than homeless persons. Wow. It is a quite the conundrum, because you don't want you know, a dictatorship, and wow, participatory democracy sounds so good, and yet our white elderly founders uh, recognized you got to have representative democracy and participatory democracy. I mean, people don't have great attention spans, let's face it, you know, and going on for hour after hour. I will never forget those meetings in the late 70s of clamshell going on for a long, long time. So I wonder about this, you know, uh, participatory democracy being practiced if it held back decisive action uh, that and it, and it caused an unfortunate splintering of the energies what do you from your observation uh, capability what might have remedied that do you think that's very challenging i think absolutely and i have to say that occupy activists were acting incredibly quickly many people were not activists before Occupy, and a lot of people were just learning social media. It's hard to think back, but 10 years ago, I mean, we were having Twitter workshops because yeah. people didn't know how to send a tweet or use it for activism. So there were a lot of ways people were kind of trying to catch up and catch up to the media who wanted to speak with this burgeoning movement mm. that came on the scene really quickly, spread around the country faster than really any movement we've seen before because of social media. Um, you know, many movements have spread through radio, through newspapers before this, but this was fast and wide and there was great desire for change. So I preface what I say by that because it wasn't. It was a challenging moment, and I think activists um, have even learned a lot more since then. We see 
some incredible organization of the Black Lives Matter movement or yeah. the Frontline, this um, new emerging collaboration between Black Lives Matter, the Working Family Party, and other organizations. Um, but that said, participatory democracy without a deep recognition of how enduring our kind of prejudices for particular leaders are and without a training about how to hear voices that are often unheard um, and without a kind of regulation within the movement. So there was this innovative practice called step up, step back. Okay. And when facilitators mm-hmm. knew about this and helped the people they were facilitating to practice it, often there were many more voices heard and a diversity of ideas could emerge. And the the idea is that those people who are typically louder and heard more, or if you've spoken once already, you've got to take a back seat and you've got to let, let other people come to the fore. And if you're someone who's more used to being quiet or unheard, let's say an indigenous person or a queer person who, you know, hasn't felt in a safe environment to spread their ideas. Well, the group has agreed, we want to hear from you and it's time for you to step up. The problem was it was up to individual facilitators to make that practice happen and kind of enforce it. There wasn't a national coordination of training for this kind of practice. And it's also, it takes a lot. You know, you're going up against hundreds of years of Hmm. racism that says, you know, my voice doesn't matter. Um, We need a lot of practice in kind of launching people into their voice matters. We're going to respect you. You're legitimate. We want to hear from you. So participatory democracy comes up against these deep, deeply embedded uh, inequalities and prejudices. And I know from uh, friends who are African-American that, you know, that they were taught by their parents, just just keep your head down, you know, keep quiet and you'll get along okay. You know, it's a tradition. It's it's a way of uh, coping and surviving. And that's been around a long, long time, unfortunately. And this is—it sounds like this this book. This is one of the things that we're trying to uh, to address and and make it better, so that people can uh, have ways to uh, to step up. And you know, as people have often heard me say, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But it sounds like people are learning from history uh, in this. That that that's fascinating. And again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohn here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, our guest today is Heather McKee Hurwitz. Her new book is Are We the 99%? The subtitle is The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. And I just got to say, we at Clamshell, we broke down into affinity groups, various committees. And uh, it was interesting. Perhaps the most productive of the committees was the drinking committee. They met in bars after the meetings. Ha ha. There were also different subgroups, I believe, uh, at Occupy, uh, different encampments, 
and mm-hmm. I, 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 they may have focused on, on different aspects. What were the positive and negative effects of subgroups within Occupy? There were many groups in the movement initially that had um, responsibility for particular aspects of the movement, um, training facilitators, uh, addressing media requests, uh, working on food or medical issues. But very quickly, groups formed in kind of an act of internal protest as some people felt their views were not being heard or, um, you know, they couldn't um, raise issues important to them, such as, you know, um, we have to think about race when we think about class, right? Yes. We can't understand the Great Recession as just a moment of class. We have to think about how people of color endured greater inequalities. They were the subject of many a disproportionate number of adjustable rate mortgages and disproportionately lost their homes and yes. jobs. Yes. So you know, this was one of the uh, kind of protests within the movement that, hey, we we can't just talk about the 99%. We've got to talk about a racialized understanding of the 99%. And when that message didn't quite penetrate the movement, um, many people of color created people of color working groups or even somewhat spin-off groups like Occupy the Hood or the Decolonize Movement where they could raise these concerns and, and work on them and create special protests and tactics and education campaigns that had that intersectional view of the movement as we got to address racism and class inequality at the same time oh, and sexism, you know, and sexuality inequalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, these groups were innovative. It was a place where people of color leaders had a real voice and stand and you know, were making important decisions to keep the movement going. And in other ways, this separated yeah. the movement. And some of that important energy and innovative ideas about how to broaden participation in the movement was kind of shifted into these subcommittees. It wasn't brought back into the main movement and the overall messages of the movement and Mm. led to some, some harm, some kind of uh, falterings of the movement. Interesting. So I wonder what, how would you suggest that that be addressed with that, with that, uh, uh, important knowledge that you gained? When activist groups have these tensions that come up, I mean, major questions in the Occupy movement, it took the form of the decolonize group saying, we should not be called Occupy anymore. Occupy signals occupation, colonization. This is something that indigenous people and people of color have been fighting against. for a long time. Occupy is the wrong name. This is a major, major critique. And instead of 
kind of dropping everything to address it and see if there could be a compromise or resolution to this, a lot of these debates were shifted into subcommittees. I mean, some movements did amazing things with this. Um, the Occupy Albuquerque group changed its name to Unoccupy. Uh, Occupy Oakland had days of debate and discussion about decolonized that were incredible political moments for people in, in breaking through around supporting racial justice. But I, I would recommend that movements at that point need to really kind of stop, <laughs> drop, <laughs> uh, address these issues. It's not a subcommittee issue. Mm-hmm. There, it's letting us know there's some major racism and white supremacy happening within the movement. And if we want to be an inclusive mass movement, these issues need to be addressed full on by the movement as a whole. Well, that can be challenging for sure. And uh, uh, I I know that, uh, as you mentioned, that a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the trigger for Occupy in 2011 was the economic recession of 2008-2009 and the tremendous inequity of the government's actions in response, you know, bailing out the big banks. Uh, Just incredibly unfair. Uh, Do you believe the economic impacts wrought by the pandemic today might encourage any kind of similar critique and level of activism? The unfairness and how that's treated? I don't know. I'm just... uh, because that, that's a big deal, obviously, as well. I have a couple of views about that. One, I, you know, I can't predict what will happen. I don't think anyone could have predicted the Occupy movement. A lot of seasoned activists said, okay, you know, some people are going down to Wall Street. Who knew it would go vi- viral? Yeah. So there was that. <laughs> There's some kind of chance or luck with some of these movements. Um, but I, I do think that on the left and the right, we are seeing people respond not only to this incredibly racially charged moment, but in terms of class. And I think at the root of the Black Lives Matter movement, at the root of some of the supporters of President Trump and the right-wing movements in this country um, in at the root of the activism and support of Bernie Sanders um, and even at the root of the Me Too movement, yes. there are economic inequalities that are driving these movements. You know, for the Me Too movement, the sexual harassment that women endure uh, radically sets back their career options and opportunities. It can derail someone's entire career or future. Um, I think that the pandemic itself, I'm not sure if people will go in that direction. I think we're seeing a lot of health disparities and we'll see if the Biden administration can roll out vaccines in an equitable way. I think there's some more consciousness there. Uh, but I would not, I won't be surprised yeah. if the Black Lives Matter movement leads people, or the front line, mm-hmm. leads people um, 
to fight for more economic justice in this in this time. Yeah, there's no question worldwide who's getting the vaccines and who's not, what's going on there. I just wanted to make sure we understand intersectionality. That's not a word that I'm that familiar with, but it's important uh, to you, and it's in the title of the book, The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. T- tell us more about right. what that means and how, in what ways it's significant going forward. Intersectionality is a term coined by professor and lawyer Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 1980s. And she developed this term to explain the kind of discrimination that black women were enduring in their jobs. It was different from black men who could get some jobs, different from white women who could get other kinds of jobs. But black women were at this place where a unique combination of sexism and racism was exacerbating their workplace discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so intersectionality is this idea that it's inaccurate to just talk about class inequality. Class inequality is always, always a product of race, racial privilege or racial discrimination, uh, discrimination based on one's gender or privileges based on one's gender. Another way to say it, we experience discrimination at this intersection of these multiple and interrelated, interconnected structures of inequality. So it's the idea that we really need our movements to address the kind of privileges or discrimination that we face as a product of class, race, gender, age, disability. It's a more complex way to think about it, but it's actually how people live their lives. Yeah, it makes me think of so much. Very very stimulating to uh, to think about these the various ways that all these forms of discrimination and groups that are discriminated against uh, can possibly come together. It sure would be nice to have some solidarity, I'll tell you. And, you know, you would think mm-hmm. what you're describing there is that, yes, there's all these different interests and all different ways of, of you know, uh, economic injustice, but, you know, in unity there is strength, as someone said, and I, I hope that we're starting to get there. Um, and you mentioned about, I thought it was fascinating, took a little time to think about the uh, uh, the word occupy. Words and phrases really matter, especially, I think, with the instant, you know, 24-7 news and the social media. For example, the words defund police. I understand what it means. You understand what it means. And it scares people. I don't think it's the best phrase. I'm not sure what the best phrase is, but what it, what it means is to, you know, have people who are more trained and skilled at other social and psychological, sociological problems be able to, to deal with it and not just, oh, send in the police. Uh, but uh, the wording is, is really, really important. And uh, Boy, that's that's it's a hard lesson to learn how we can do it. Was there any kind of 
consensus, dare I say, about what might be a better word or phrase than occupy? There was a lot of debate in the movement about these messages and how to frame the movement so that people yeah. could become more involved. I think it's it's one of the things that I'm actually happy is really in the book because how much do we kind of step back and critically look at the various messages and art of a movement and kind of think back on it and say, do we really want that word or phrase or image? Like, what are the meanings of these? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier in the show, the archive of Occupy mm -hmm. ephemera and newspapers that I've compiled uh, with a team of student researchers Great. and librarians. And that's another place where your listeners could go to kind of just step back from the movement and think about, you know, what are the most powerful messages? Uh -huh. What are the messages and art that's kind of falling short here? And to get to your specific question about Occupy, people did as best as they could. There were definitely some people who said unoccupy mm -hmm. or people who said uh, decolonize was really the counter to Occupy and saying, you know, we want to bring yeah. racial justice to the forefront and be critical about even the founding of this country. Um, and some people, some people embraced Occupy. Um, we had a spinoff group, Occupy the Farm, uh, based in the Oakland area, who kind of transformed their kind of subgroup into this environmental group. But mm, they said, mm. you know, we started at Occupy, we met at Occupy, we're occupying land to make food for our community. We want to keep that name. And then so other people said, you know, we're going to reject this and we're going to do something totally different. We're, we're just the privacy working group. You know, we're in, we want to be anti-surveillance. Uh -huh. We want to hold uh -huh. our politicians to account. We met at Occupy, but um, that's who we are now. We're something different, and we're we're our kind of shifted into some of the nitty-gritty specific things that we really care about. And we met some people at Occupy who really want to do this, so we're going to create a group that's all about this. Well, there's so many, so many different aspects of, of what this issue is, and I suppose it could be capital T, capital I, this issue, because it, you know, there are so many different aspects of it. It seems definitely appropriate to to look at them all and to to look at at farming. You know, there's the uh, you made me think about you know the the agribusiness and the massive farms, and you know the chemicals that are used on it and the lack of you know, people being able to uh, decide what gets put in their food and how it gets done. It's all kind of the same issue. and We need to somehow work together, but it's not so simple. It's not so simple at all. In fact, it's, it's really complex. And again, one of my favorite phrases from H.L. Mencken is, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. We have to have, you know, really uh, complex answers. And you argue in your book, which, by the way, is titled, We Are, Are We the 99%, The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality, uh, wording is, is certainly important. Get money out of politics. 
uh, they got bailed out, we got sold out. There, you say that perhaps they're somewhat exclusive frames. Who 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 gets marginalized by frames like that? Who are they representing? It sounds pretty straightforward and uh, uh, you know doesn't offend anybody. But what about them? Those phrases. I find that some of these more general phrases, um, even "We are the ninety nine percent" or you know, "Come celebrate the Occupy movement" and put out any issue that you want in the movement. They did this on the the birthday party to celebrate one year of Occupy. On the face of it, there is a message of inclusion. Anyone can come and do what they want. Mm-hmm. Everyone is welcome here. Mm-hmm. But it's a very individual, individualist message. And it's not a message that recognizes the particularity of people's experiences of discrimination and class inequality. So a phrase like, we got, uh, banks got bailed out, we got sold out. If your life experience is shaped by um, racial discrimination, that phrase, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, you get probably uh, the banks are a big problem here and there needs, we need to break up these big banks who are serving big corporate interests Mm -hmm. over interests of the general population. But that phrase doesn't signal this is a movement that gets that these banks have been formed to support a white supremacist culture and support uh, the white middle class. You know, where did mortgages were something that um, many people of color were not able to get until recently. And still. We have to think about the history of redlining. Yes. And um, even it does persist today in among realtors and banks, uh, you know, we have incredibly segregated neighborhoods still. So uh, that's what I'm I'm bringing out these kinds of general phrases, general calls to action are inclusive to people who maybe want to see them and buy into them and who can bring their particular life experience to it, but um if we really want to have a diverse movement where women, queer people, indigenous people, people with disabilities feel they're included in these messages or part of the movement and there's a recognition of the particular discriminations that they endure in their lives. And this is a movement dedicated to ending those. We need that complexity in those messages. And I would think, you know, we, all of us can learn from the experience of other people and you know, in the summer of 2020, white people across America were shocked by the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Black people were not surprised when some occupiers wanted to make confrontations with those in power. They effectively, as I understand it, ignored the race and gendered consequences that men of color and all women face when they express their anger in white 
all-male-dominated contexts. I wonder if you could say more about that aspect. There are different consequences for white persons and black persons when you get angry. Yes. There's a higher likelihood during a protest, if you're black, you could more easily be arrested than if you're white. And there white people have greater reserves to deal with arrest usually than often persons of color. So there's those higher risk situations, you know, are where to to have a diverse and inclusive movement. We need permits a lot of times for protests. And even that isn't a total, you know, fail safe. But if we want undocumented persons as a part of, social movements, we have to make it a safe and welcoming place to protest. And and therefore, that's getting permits and probably changing tactics, maybe not using a militant civil disobedience. There's so much to learn from history. And I'll, I'll tell you, I remember the student left in the, in the late 60s knew nothing about the 1930s, we we we, sh- we thought we were, you know, all on our own, and this we were just so unique. It was not the case. There's a lot to learn from history. There's a lot to learn from Occupy. That's for sure. And again, the book is titled "Are We the 99 Percent?" Our guest is author Heather McKee Hurwitz. So the Occupy actions came in 2011. What happened in 2012? The movement continued and transformed. In 2012, people, many people continued to meet in indoor spaces. Uh, some of the things that happened in New York were these uh, Occupy Town Squares, one-day protest encampments. They also participated in New York in Occupy Sandy and in- incredibly and quickly uh-huh. acted as a disaster relief organization, you know, using those tools of social media that the movement had developed. They had these great networks. They were used to setting up field kitchens and um, Mm. involving street medics and helping people. Um, There was a a free store they developed where people in places ravaged by the disaster could come and get, you know, free diapers and canned food. And in other ways, organizations people who formed friendships and developed organizations keep kept acting mm-hmm. in 2012. Um, some like the Occupy the Farm or the um, privacy working group that I mentioned, mm-hmm. these subgroups developed their own particular goals and they started meeting on their own. They um, used some of what they learned from the Occupy movement and then their own activist subgroups kept developing. And many activists from the Occupy movement continued to be active in 2012 and sometimes mm-hmm. in other ways. Um, and pres- uh, presumably people, still are. And presumably, absolutely still are. Yeah. Uh, probably the two biggest ways uh, many people participated in hoodie marches to protest uh-huh. the unjust killing of Trayvon Martin. Yes. And then in 2013, many of those people jumped into the Black Lives Matter movement when it kind of burst on the scene. And the other kind of really big way people continued the Occupy movement 
then those networks help to fuel Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns. And, you know, we wouldn't have Bernie Sanders and his protests and every speech is railing on the 1%. We wouldn't have that without what started in the Occupy movement. Yes, it's very encouraging. And certainly, as we all know, Bernie Sanders did not get the nomination. Uh, Joe Biden did. Joe Biden is not Bernie Sanders. Uh, I'm sure, you know, he's not particularly left, shall we say. But one of the things that, you know, as an old activist myself, that I hope people learn is that pressure works. Making noise works. Getting the media attention works. It's so important to do that and to push and to push hard and be patient. So it's been 10 years. 2021 is the 10th anniversary of the start of Occupy. So I wonder you know, if you could just, you know, thinking back in the last 10 years of activism, what might we, do you think we might expect for the next 10? I mean, who would have imagined a Trump presidency where the 1% got, you know, much, much worse. I mean, the top one-tenth of 1% with their incredible wealth. What what do you think we have learned and what can we expect for the next 10 years? Are we learning the crucial lessons, do you think, Heather? I think that we're learning. I think the Black Lives Matter movement is a testament to movements being more intersectional mm-hmm. in their messaging. And I think that's going to continue over the next 10 years. I think we'll see movements use that analysis of thinking about the class, race, gender, sexual, disability dimensions of movements and kind of bringing those threads together and not just focusing on one form of inequality. I think we'll see feminists and queer people being increasingly involved and kind of front stage in social movements. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I mean, feminism is one of the longest and most enduring of social movements. And I think it's, to me, it's not a surprise that some of the success of the Black Lives Matter movement can be attributed to three queer black women who, Hmm. uh, you know, started this movement and I think have shaped it with some of that feminist sensibility um, and a real feminist critique. And I think our future movements will see even more savvy use of social media. This was something that, you know, radically transformed what the Occupy movement was Um, and has just set a tone for this period of activism. And I think that will definitely continue. I'm so curious other tools on social media uh, folks will use. I mean, now it's, you know, Zoom town hall meetings and how incredible to coordinate people around the country in that way. I mean, that's something the Occupy movement didn't really have. We had conference calls, um, but this is a whole different thing, seeing people kind of face-to-face, um, even if it's over mm. Zoom. Yeah, the, the possibilities are amazing based on that uh, that technology. 
I mean, the printing press really changed things too and activated a movement way back 500 or so years ago, uh, just being able to communicate, to listen, and to work together. Well, the book is called Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism and Intersectionality. Fascinating, important stuff. Our guest has been its author, Heather McKee-Hurwitz. Thank you so much for being with us. And I always like a sense of optimism at the end of the show. And I'm feeling that now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. People of the world together Join to serve the common cause so it feeds us all forever See to it that it's now yours Forward without forgetting Where our strength can be seen now to be When starving or when eating It's forward, not forgetting our Yeah.